Of all the events in the Weimar Republic's years of crisis, 1919 to 1923, perhaps none was as fateful and more prophetic as the Beer Hall Putsch. Taking place between November 8th and 9th, 1923, it was an attempted coup d'etat in the Weimar Republic by the National Socialist German Workers' Party, or NSDAP, more commonly known as the Nazi Party. Over the course of those two days, some 2,000 Nazis marched on the city center in the Bavarian capital of Munich, only to be met with heavy police opposition, the ensuing clash of which resulted in the death of 16 Nazis and four police officers. Its leader and mastermind, a German World War I veteran known as Adolf Hitler, was whisked away to safety in the countryside following the skirmish, but was caught and arrested two days later and charged with treason. The event not only sent shockwaves across Germany, but was reported in newspapers around the world. The ensuing 24-day trial presented Hitler with the opportunity to express his ultra-nationalist views to a wider audience. Though he was ultimately sentenced to five years in prison, during which time he dictated his manifesto to fellow inmates Rudolf Hess and Emil Maurice, the basis of which would become Mein Kampf, he was quickly released, having served just nine months, after which time he focused his efforts on obtaining power through legal channels rather than by force, building up his Nazi propaganda in the process. The Weimar Republic in those pivotal first four years was a veritable circus of political upheaval. Luckily for the government and its constituents, some stability would come, ushering in a brief period of cultural prosperity for Germany. This time frame, known as the Golden Era, or the Golden Aswanziger, the Golden Twenties, was an unprecedented time of creative output. From 1924 to 1929, Germany, namely the capital of Berlin, rivaled France, specifically Paris, as the center of European art and culture, becoming the place to be for writers, artists, and intellectuals of every kind. What led to the golden era of the Weimar Republic? What were its accomplishments and achievements? And what brought about its long, painful end? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and welcome to part two of this special two-part edition of the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. The Beer Hall Putsch is often seen as the turning point in the Weimar Republic's transition from a chaotic regime to one of relative stability. The events of November 1923 shook the country to its core, but it was followed by a decrease in civil unrest. Perhaps this was due in part to a growing economy. After the hyperinflation of the late teens and early 20s, during which time the papier mark became virtually worthless, a permanent currency was put in place in October of 1923, the Rentenmark. This was the first step in repairing the German economy, and led to a growing level of international confidence in the Weimar Republic. In addition, the Dawes Plan was drawn up in 1924 in order to help Germany uphold its promise to pay out war reparations to the former Triple Entente, that is Britain, France, Russia, and its allies, per the Treaty of Versailles. Named after Charles G. Dawes, the American banker who proposed it, it was an agreement between American banks and the Weimar government, in which the former would loan money to German banks with German assets as collateral. At this time, Germany also became the first state in the world to establish diplomatic relations with the newly formed Soviet Union, formally recognizing it in the process. In addition, the two countries mutually agreed to cancel all pre-war debts and renounced war claims. Then, in 1925, Germany signed the Treaty of Locarno in Switzerland, in which Britain, France, Belgium, and Italy recognized Germany's borders with both Belgium and France. The following year, Germany was admitted into the recently established League of Nations as a permanent member, further improving the country's international national status and allowing it the right to vote on league issues. Unemployment fell to new lows, while trade only continued to increase. It was this relatively prosperous time that formed the backdrop of what would become known as the Golden Twenties. 
With the Weimar Republic having finally found its footing and on the rise at last, the capital of Berlin became a major cosmopolitan center which, in the mid-1920s, rivaled Paris as the place to be in Europe for art, theater, music, literature, and cinema. This burst of creativity was tied to Germany's diplomatic relations with the Soviet Union, itself having experienced a cultural boom in its formative years. Taking cues from their Russian ally, Berliners experimented heavily with the avant-garde. Street theater brought plays to the general public. The city pulsated to the rhythms and sounds of American jazz music. Cabarets and nightclubs ushered in a golden age of political satire, poking fun at both far-left and far-right factions. Even its citizenry did away with traditional German social mores, becoming more Americanized, quote-unquote, in the process. They started smoking, wearing the fashionable clothing of the period, and did the Charleston, the Foxtrot, and the Tango at bandstands and in dance halls. This unprecedented period ushered in sexual freedoms as well, the like of which had scarcely been seen anywhere else on the continent in such open, blatant fashion. This was due in part to the Scientific Humanitarian Committee. Founded in 1897 by one Magnus Hirschfeld, a German physician and sexologist, the committee carried out a number of prominent studies under the relative freedom of the Weimar Republic, publishing a series of articles that matter-of-factly addressed what Hirschfeld referred to as, quote, sexual minorities, unquote, that is, homosexuals, lesbians, bisexuals, and even transgender people. Persecuted by law under paragraph 175 of the infamous German Criminal Code, it strove to educate and enlighten the general public about these marginalized communities. In turn, this newfound understanding led to a thriving gay and lesbian subculture, as members of these sexual minorities flocked to Berlin from all over the continent as well as the world. The sight of drag queens and women in men's suits was not unusual in public. Nightclubs such as the El Dorado and Cozy Corner became meeting places for gay men in bars like Entre Nous and Café Dorian Gray were favorite hotspots among a strictly lesbian clientele. The most famous chronicle of this lively subculture can perhaps be found in the works of British novelist Christopher Isherwood, who called the city home from 1929 to 1933, and who thoroughly explored and enjoyed its notorious gay haunts. But it wasn't all fun and games in this new Germany. Countless social reforms were enacted during the Golden Era, which, with the exception of World War II, would lay the foundations for German democracy for years to come. A maximum 48-hour workweek was introduced at this time, which included restrictions on night shifts, a break of 36 hours of continuous rest during the week, and even a half-holiday on Saturdays. Health insurance was extended to wives and daughters without their own income, as well as to people employed by both public and private cooperatives. Government aid was provided to wounded veterans and their dependents, including war widows and orphans. An act that would protect the welfare and well-being of children was put into law as well, and dictated that the right to education was a right to which all children are entitled. Public assistance programs were instated to help the unemployed find employment, and a housing boom led to the construction of over 2 million new homes and 195,000 updated ones. At last, conditions seemed to be looking up for Germany. But, as you probably know, history had other plans for the formerly ravaged nation. In October 1929, the Weimar Republic took a major hit yet again, with the stock market crash. This event had a direct effect on Germany's economy, as they had been dependent upon American aid through the Dawes Plan to uphold their promise of war reparations. No sooner had American banks withdrawn their lines of credit from German companies did severe unemployment lead to the use of drastic economic relief measures. By 1930, four million people were out of work, and the promise of more on the way. 
But then, in September of that year, the National Socialist German Workers' Party, NSDAP, more commonly known as the Nazi Party, assumed leadership of the Reichstag, the German seat of government, with 19% of the popular vote, but did little to work with the Weimar Republic's coalition system of government. This, naturally, led to more infighting and violence, creating even greater political instability than during the years of crisis. In just three years, between 1930 and 1933, a total of four chancellors governed the country through presidential decree rather than parliamentary consultation. This virtually rendered the parliament useless, for they were no longer able to enforce checks and balances per the Weimar Constitution. It was the opportunity the Nazi party and its leader Adolf Hitler were looking for. In the decades since they'd attempted the Beer Hall Putsch, the Nazis had learned to bide their time. In that instance, they'd learned that taking the country by force only led to disaster. This time around, they went through all the legal channels in order to ensure that they could easily and legitimately secure positions in government that, in turn, would lead them to gaining control of the entire nation. Given the state in which the Weimar Republic then found itself, it would prove easier than ever before. On March 29, 1930, Heinrich Brüning became Chancellor of Germany. In a last-ditch effort to save the Weimar Republic from collapse, he operated independently of Parliament through emergency powers granted per the Constitution and President, and enacted a deflation policy that drastically cut state expenditure. As a result, aid for the sick, the unemployed, and even veterans was greatly reduced. On top of this, a year later in mid-1931, Great Britain abandoned the gold standard. In addition, 30 other countries lowered the value of their currency, making their goods 20% cheaper than those produced in Germany. To keep up with this, Brüning issued what's known as a deflationary internal devaluation, in which the economy was forced to reduce rent, salaries, wages, and prices by 20%. Critics were skeptical of the Chancellor's choices from the start, but Brüning was convinced that deflation was the only way to improve economic matters within the country. By putting deflation in place, he thought that the economy would eventually improve enough so that the country's credit worthiness would be restored. Sadly, it wasn't to be. As conditions worsened, the Nazis once again took to the streets, not in an attempt at another coup, but to demonstrate to the German people that the Weimar government no longer had their best interests at heart. As such, the NSDAP gained quite a following amongst the middle class. Riots often broke out between the police and the Sturmabteilung, or SA, the Nazi paramilitary, and the Weimar government imposed a ban on them. Then, on May 20, 1932, Brüning resigned and was replaced by Franz von Papen as Chancellor of Germany. Though he would serve for less than a year, he would prove to be the link between the fall of the Weimar Republic and the rise of Adolf Hitler. Papen's first order of business was to lift the ban on the SA. At this time, no one in the Reichstag, regardless of party, could come to an agreement. In July of 1932, Papen called for new elections, the general elections of which took place on July 31st. Though the communist factions yielded major gains, the Nazi party won 37.3% of the vote, becoming the largest party represented in the Reichstag, though it didn't gain the majority. In a bold move, Hitler refused a ministry position under Papen and demanded that he become chancellor. After much discussion within the Reichstag, his demands were rejected. On August 13, 1932, further elections were held in the hope that a majority would be declared. The election of November 6 that same year revealed a 33% vote in favor of the Nazis. Papen promptly stepped down as chancellor and was replaced by one Kurt von Schleicher. A conservative, his plan was to unite both left and right-wing factions, including the Nazis, in order to build a majority within the Reichstag. This, too, would prove fruitless. 
With the Reichstag on the brink of collapse, Hitler seized the opportunity to propose a new government to the then president of the Weimar Republic, Paul von Hindenburg, at which time the Nazi leader threatened legal action regarding tax irregularities surrounding the president's estate, per Papen's orders. In late January of 1933, Schleicher called for new elections. With the threat of legal action over his head, President Hindenburg reluctantly agreed to Hitler's proposition of a new government, and, on January 30th, the leader of the Nazi party was sworn in as chancellor. The rest, as they say, is history, and a bitter and ugly history at that. No sooner had he won the chancellorship did Hitler clamp down on any and all opposition. Meetings of left-wing factions were banned, and even middle-of-the-road moderate groups soon found themselves threatened with violence. Measures whose legality remained questionable were enacted to suppress the Communist Party. And, by the end of February of 1933, Reichstag constituents were arrested and or deposed. A fire in the Reichstag on February 28th was blamed on the communists, and it wasn't long before they too became the targets of attacks, arrests, and even death. For the rest of the 1930s and half of the 1940s, the Nazi government carried out heinous crimes against humanity, as well as numerous atrocities not just on the quote-unquote enemies outside of its borders, but within them. Though chaotic and steeped in political turmoil, the Weimar Republic became a mere memory, a footnote in Germany's vast and rich history. It would be a long and winding road to democracy for the Germans, one whose end would be reached with the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, nearly 60 years after their first attempt. Though they might not have realized it at the time, they owed a great deal to the Weimar Republic. Despite its many flaws, it truly paved the way for German democracy, and remains a fascinating case study of a country transitioning from the old ways of government, that is, monarchy, to the new. Thank you for joining me on this special two-part edition of the History Loves Company podcast. I hope you enjoyed this particular installment. I know I did, and learned a great deal in the process. If you, like me, love history, and would like to ensure future quality content to discover even more, just go to anchor.fm slash historylovescompany and consider becoming a monthly supporter. You'll find monthly installment plans in three different tiers that fit any budget. Remember, just listening and sharing helps too. Be sure to tune in next Thursday and every Thursday for a brand new episode of the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you next week.